Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Stan Moser, with stories about many of the artists and behind-the-scenes people who made contemporary Christian music possible. Shortly after that, uh, Billy Ray Hearn, who was the head of A&R at that point for uh, one of the head of a- two of the guys that were started a label called Murr Records. Uh, and Murr Records, uh, some of the early artists on that were people like uh, Petra in the very early days and Second Chapter of Acts, which many people will be familiar with. Sure. So all of a sudden I started hearing and getting introduced to contemporary Christian music uh, that obviously was being burst uh, out of the Jesus movement, uh, there was a connection there. Stan Moser next. Stan Moser was one of the prominent behind-the-scenes people responsible for advancing contemporary Christian music and many of the artists involved in it. Stan has held key positions in the Christian music industry at Word Records, Starsong Communications, and Maranatha Music. Today and tomorrow, we'll talk to him about some of his experiences he tells in his book, We Will Stand, the real story behind the songs, artists, and executives that built the contemporary Christian music industry. Stan, why do you want to tell this story? Actually, the writing of this book um, goes back to 2010. Mm. Uh, in 2010, I was, uh, 2009, 2010, the Lord had called me to go to uh, Arizona. Uh, and really, my instruction was go to go help build the men's ministry in Arizona. That was, that was the instruction I got from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so we moved out there and spent three years out there and saw just amazing results. And in our one church in Tucson, we had more than 500 adult males uh, come to Christ for the first time. Mm. And these were tatted up guys. We were in the land of the cartel, and it was it was just an amazing experience to watch what God was doing. Well, in the midst of that, uh, the Lord started you know talking to me about writing a book. Now, when I say the Lord talked to me, I haven't heard Him audibly yet, but I sure wish I could you know at some point. But you know that that spirit, your inner spirit, you know that's Him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Lord kept kept saying that this is all I kept hearing. It's time to write your story. It's time to write, and I'm, mm. and I start having this discussion as I do with the Lord, you know, from time to time. And I said, "Really? Uh, well, first of all, why would anybody care? And secondly, isn't that a bit narcissistic?" Mm. <laughs> Took a little bit of back and forth with the Lord and, until I finally got it, and the Lord really reveals to me, "No, no, no, it's not your story. It's your story." And I began to realize that what He's talking about is the story of the all of the uh, key people, kind of a, what I call a, a collective recollection of how uh, contemporary Christian music began uh, coming out of the Jesus movement and, and all the different stories and how the artists got got signed. There's amazing stories about, you know, 16-year-old Amy Grant when I signed her, and, and uh, we'll, maybe we'll talk about that later, yeah. and so many others uh, that that I knew about, I wasn't even involved in, but uh, so I, I, I realized that's what he was doing. And so I started working on this book uh, really in 2013. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Bill Gaither is an old friend of mine. He, he always said a good song is written and a great song is rewritten. Hmm. And I began to learn that about a good book is written and a great book is rewritten. I hope this is a great book because it took 26 drafts. Wow. of this book before uh, what, what is available o- online now. Uh, so all I have to say is uh, I started working on it in 2013, started interviewing uh, my former friends, colleagues, competitors, you know, <laughs> that, uh, that I had known over the years I knew were very influential. 
I started with five hours with my old friend, Billy Ray Hearn, who uh, built Murr Records and then built Sparrow Records. And a lot of people will know that name because he was quite well known. Mm-hmm. Uh, and brought us people like, oh, I don't know, Second Track of Acts, Keith Green, you know, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Steve Green. Shall I go on? Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and so five hours with Billy Ray sitting on his couch at the house. Uh, mm. And it was just a, it was just a wonderful moment. And so a year of writing the book and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, editing, uh, sourcing pictures. The book has like a hundred pictures, something like a hundred pictures. And I bet many of them that have never been seen uh, by general public. Uh, and I'll never forget after my second interview with Billy Ray, I was driving out of the driveway uh, at his house and I called my wife Sue and I said, you know what? I believe the Lord's just telling me it's now time to do that homecoming event, the CCM homecoming, you know, like Bill Gaither's homecoming for Southern Gospel. Uh, it's time to do that event. And sure enough, a year later, we actually did the event, which has become a television special and has really been viewed by millions of people. So that's kind of the story behind the book. Mm. And uh, one of those things uh, I just had to do uh, once I understood what the Lord was really directing. And of, of course, uh, we're going to be talking about the artists, the songs that we are familiar with, that many of us are, but you're also shining a spotlight uh, on many of the behind-the-scenes people we don't know, and yes. some people will know the name Billy Ray Hearn, others will right. not, they'll only know the artist, right. but there were, as you point out in your book, a, 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 an army of people that were um, behind the scenes that made it all happen. I promise you that uh, as much as your your listeners are very familiar with you know, a lot of these songs we could talk about, and, and of course, even the great songs of today, this, the, the same story is true of today. If it weren't for the people behind the scenes, uh, the executives, so to speak, uh, that make this music possible, trust me, you would not have a clue who Stephen Curtis Chapman was. You wouldn't have a clue because... Uh, they, we provided the platform, and you provided the platform, by the way, uh, Christian Radio, uh, the labels, the, the, we provided the distribution, the manufacturing, the marketing. Uh, we, we had to convince you to, that it was good to play that song. Yeah. Uh, you know, all you radio people, uh, I, I've forgiven you, but you know, <laughs> you, you were, you guys were always, always a, the, a hard sell and you should have been. Yeah. We didn't play uh, them all. <laughs> But, but there are there's so many people that have no visibility to the consumer mm-hmm. uh, that are cr- critical and have been critical uh, to the music, getting making the music that has impacted your life so well, making that music possible. Uh, not making the music, certainly there are many of those people that we can talk about too, the A&R guys, the producers and so forth that actually made the actual notes on tape or, <laughs> or yeah. digits, whatever it is today. Mm-hmm. And they are often behind the scenes as well. So there's an, uh, there's an army of people uh, behind every successful song. Well, I do want to ask you, and of course get into the, the nuts and bolts of, of contemporary Christian music, but I wanted to ask you about your background into the world of contemporary Christian music. It was before that term was even known. I believe it was back to 1970, and you were quite I, a young I, man. I, I was clearly, uh, I spent uh, years and years and years uh, being educated in how to build a Christian music company. Uh, if you believe that, I got some swampland, <laughs> I want to say. No, when I started in 1970 as a 20-year-old college student, I'll let you do the math on how old I actually am. 
uh, and I was at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Uh, I was uh, a math and physics major. Mm -hmm. I, I was training wow. to, yeah, I was training to go to NASA and put people on the moon. That was, that was my uh, trajectory. That was a big deal uh, in your family's household too, right? You write in the book that that was, a, I mean, you got to stay out of school when you watched, was in 1961? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I watched Alan Shepard, uh, the first American launched into space, uh, yeah, I got to. My, I think I was in the fifth grade, and I got to skip. I got to skip the first hour of school to stay home and watch TV. <laughs> you can imagine that was the big, biggest deal in the world to a kid, and, mm -hmm. and that captured my fascination with uh, space travel. Not that I ever wanted to get in a capsule myself, but I sure loved the idea of, of, of sending people into orbit, uh, literally. But anyway, in the middle of my junior year, uh, some people may remember the Apollo 13 movie about the, uh, the almost disastrous uh, uh, return of the capsule in 1969. Shortly after that, they started closing down the space program for a season. So I realized I needed to get a job uh, locally in Waco, Texas, of all places, you know, 100,000 people, you know, if you counted them all. Uh, and um, because I was going to graduate in a year and a half. And so uh, I made two decisions. One, one was... Uh, I already had so much, uh, so many classes in math and physics and the chemistry and all the stuff you had to have that I really didn't need to do anything else to major uh, for my major. So I said, what's the what's the easiest way out of college uh, so I can you know do what I want to do? And that was go to business school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I went to business school for the last year and a half. Uh, and when I pretty much when I started that that venture. Um, I, I decided to go to work for Word Records. Um, there were only two companies in town that intrigued me. Uh, I didn't want to work for a local company. I wanted to work for a company that just had a little bit broader reach, and Word was one of those. And when I was 17 years old, three years earlier, my dad had written a book that was published by Word, along with a very uh, well-known football player named Bill Glass, hmm. who today, today is more better known for uh, his behind-the-walls prison ministry that has lasted 50 years, and Bill passed on uh, last year, I believe it was. Hmm. Uh, and so they let me co-author this book as a 17-year-old kid. So I was familiar with Word. My, I went to see my editor, my former editor from three years earlier, George Baskin, and told him I was looking for a job. And he said, yeah, you know, I, why don't you come to work for us, you know, minimum wage, buck 60 an hour, and we'll find something for you to do. So that's that was clearly uh, a, a career decision I made. No, just just kidding. And right. here we are 53 years later, and the Lord obviously had a different plan, and boy, am I grateful. Well, that's a tremendous background, uh, just leading up to uh, kind of the entrance to the, the whole discussion of your book, We Will Stand, the real story behind the songs, artists, and the executives that built the contemporary Christian music industry. And we, we've uh, gotten with the movie uh, Jesus Revolution earlier this year, we've gotten exposed that kind of the, the nation has to the yeah. Jesus movement and, and some of its early... Uh, origins and so on in Southern California, but I'm wondering if you could describe to us the uh, contemporary Christian music's connection to the Jesus movement. Oh, sure. Uh, that, that's very intriguing. By the way, I enjoyed that movie. It was very inspiring. The evangelism that it uh, represented was, mm -hmm. was real, uh, and I was not in California at that time, but I certainly was impacted by it and got involved in the aftermath of it quite a bit. Uh, so when I started in 1970, I, I was a kid in Waco, Texas, that grew up in Waco, Texas, went to Baylor University, Southern Baptist to the core. 
you know, and uh, and so I had no clue about the Jesus movement that had already begun and any of that until a little bit later. Uh, in fact, when I started Word Records, I didn't quite know what to do with the music because the artists of the day were people like the Happy Goodman family, uh, Southern Gospel, the Florida Boys. Uh, the artist of the day was George Beverly Shea and Norma Zimmer from the Lawrence Welk Show. <laughs> and I remember sitting and it, it, looking at the catalog uh, because I was I was a, a part of uh, personally involved in sales early on, uh, and. Um, and I kept saying, what, what, how do I sell this stuff? Because as a 20 year old kid, it was like, <laughs> we, we happened to be distributing a, rec a label called Light Records, which was based in Southern California. And I quickly discovered an artist named Andre Crouch. Mm. And, uh, and I said, okay, there's the Christian Motown uh, with Andre. So I finally had something I could relate to. So we started, I started selling that. And shortly after that, uh, Billy Ray Hearn, who was the head of A&R at that point for uh, one of the head of a two of the guys that were started a label called Murr Records. Uh, and Murr Records, uh, some of the early artists on that were people like uh, Petra in the very early days and Second Chapter of Acts, which many people would be familiar with. Sure. So all of a sudden I started hearing and getting introduced to contemporary Christian music. Uh, that obviously was being birthed uh, out of the Jesus movement, uh, there was a connection there. Uh, and so uh, by the time I got into that, Billy Ray left and uh, left word in 1975, I believe, to start Sparrow Records. But that by that point, I'd become head of sales. I'd started the telephone marketing. Uh, please, everybody, forgive me for starting <laughs> telephone marketing. Uh, and I had I had uh, 18 people on the phones, uh, calling stores, calling consumers, uh, selling Christian music. And so it was it was really early on. I was quite young and I was at, at 23 years of age. I was the assistant sales manager in charge of all the field reps and all this telephone sales. So I began to discover the other uh, Jesus music, the things like Love Song and, and uh, you know, Larry Norman. And so I started doing deals. I did it with Larry Norman in 1973 to create Solid Rock Records, uh, which had Randy Stonehill, Jesus music. Uh, in 1974, I did a deal to create Good News Records, uh, which ended up with the second Love Song record. Uh, the Final Touch record was on there, along with Chuck Gerard's solo album in 1975. So I got in, in, uh, embraced all of that. But but to but, uh, and I'll try to stop with this on this particular part of the story. Um, but I, the pivotal day for contemporary Christian music, from my experience, mm -hmm. now there might have been other things going on in the country. By the way, we didn't have uh, TikTok and Facebook and Twitter back then. I just want to be sure that your audience. <laughs> right. um, we actually had phones on our desk, and we had to actually type uh, and do and do carbon <laughs> copies and put it in the mailbox. You know it, things like that. Uh, we didn't even have fax machines. Uh, but anyway, uh, and so in 1975, uh, this uh, contemporary sound uh, was had grown so rapidly. And we realized that, you know, yes, Love Song, Larry Norman, uh, you know, Randy Stonehill, Phil Kagey, um, that was Jesus music that came out of a, mo a movement of God, a, a very unique and dot well documented. The Jesus revolution is a great, great way to, to learn about that if, if your listeners don't know about it. Um, but there was another kind of artist. Andre Crouch was California based, but he was a preacher's kid. He really wasn't Jesus movement. 
his music wasn't quite the same content. Mm -hmm. And he didn't come out of the same foundation. He was just in that era. Another artist came along in 1973, I believe we signed her, did her first record named Evie Tornquist. And Evie was a 16-year-old girl who had a Swedish background, came from Rahway, New Jersey, but everybody thought she was Swedish. And uh, and so she was traveling around and drawing huge crowds and singing this, this a little different style. It wasn't Norma Zimmer hymns. It was something different. Hmm. And so we began to realize that there were more and more of those artists. Reba Rambo became a contemporary artist. You know, she was part of the Rambo Southern Gospel fan, but she started doing contemporary. The Imperials, which had been Southern Gospel, did an album called No Shortage, which was more contemporary. At that time, we had a record club. Remember the old Columbia Record Clubs, you know, where they ship you an album every X number of days? Sure. Uh, called Family Record Club, and it had a contemporary division. So this contemporary music was growing so rapidly that we decided we needed a contemporary record club, not family record club, but a new club. And so our ad agency flew in from uh, California and we were, had a, had a, I was asked to lead a meeting uh, to come up with the name for this club uh, because it's very, very important. Of course, I was 24 at the time or 25 hmm. at the time. Uh, so I was right in the middle of all the music. So I led the meeting and I'll never forget the meeting had about six or eight of us in there. And I took a yellow pad uh, and I hope everybody remembers what a yellow pad is <laughs> or was. And uh, and so I took a pen, wrote across the top line of the yellow pad. So, OK, guys, guys and gals, I said, this is what it is. Contemporary Christian music. I wrote that on the top line. I said, now that will never work. That will never be a good brand. Forget that. Now let's come up with a great brand. So we spent the next hour and I filled out the entire yellow pad, the first page. I wish I had that sheet. Hmm. It would be probably be in the, in the GMA <laughs> somewhere or in the museum somewhere. Uh, and so we got to the end of that yellow pad and the end of that meeting. And I put my pen down and kind of disgustedly said, well, uh, obviously none of these are going to work. I guess we're just going to have to call it contemporary Christian music and make that mean something. And guess what? It became to mean something. And I'm not saying we were the only ones coining that phrase, but we were the largest Christian music influence. Mm -hmm. you know, and so we had the marketing means to make it mean something. And so that's literally where the name came from. And roughly what year was that, Stan? Late 70s? 1975. Oh, 75. And uh, I, I wanted to ask you, and I want to get right back to, to, to the music itself, but I think in your book, uh, We Will Stand, you say that your Christian life, your journey with the Lord is connected or intertwined with contemporary Christian music. Is that right? Oh, intimately. Uh, as I said, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and I was you know, a good Southern Baptist boy until I became a teenager. Then I just showed up at church whenever I had to. Uh, yep. And as quickly as I could get out of the house, I, you know, I, I, I never went back. Uh, you know, probably when I was doing all this work at Word, think about that, the largest Christian music company in the world, and I wasn't even going to church. And, you know, I had my, I had my ticket to heaven punched, and, and that's all I needed. Mm -hmm. I had no clue about um, you know, John 15, you know, <laughs> remaining, living, dwelling with the Lord, you know. Uh, and and uh, so I was, just, I was just going through life trying to figure it out myself. Uh, and so uh, life was not great. It had a lot of obstacles, a lot of problems, a lot of issues. And yet I was being very successful at work. Uh, so that became my identity. Uh, and so all this is happening. And in the spring of 1977, uh, I was at an Imperials concert back in the Rust Taft Imperials days. A lot of people will remember those days. Mm -hmm. 
First Baptist Church in Waco, Texas on a Sunday night. And during the concert, Dave Will, one of the Imperials, gave an altar call. And, and the Lord literally changed my life that night. Mm. And I knew I had to, it was time to surrender you know, my life to Jesus Christ. You know, we all talk, we all talk about, um, uh, we hear often at times, you need to make a commitment to Christ, brother. You need to you know, make a commitment to Christ. Well, really, that's not sufficient. Uh, it, he's not interested in a commitment. He's interested in full surrender. And so I made a commitment to Christ when I was six years old. I walked the aisle. It was real. Um, but no, that was not sufficient. So our, what he's calling us to do is to surrender our lives fully to him, mm. allow him to live, remain and dwell in us and live through us and us and him. He's in us. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. That's surrender. Mm. And so that night, God called me to surrender my highly successful CCM executive life to him. And, uh, and it had a radical impact. And it happened at an Imperials concert. Uh, and uh, I didn't go forward to the altar that night because I had about 125 people in the audience that basically worked for me in various ways. <laughs> uh, but I, I soon did go to the altar. And, uh, and I'm so grateful that God uh, intervened in my otherwise highly successful world. I'm wondering, in the 70s, how would you describe, and I think you do it in your book, We Will Stand, but describe the focus of Christian music, of contemporary Christian music, in the 1970s, and then as it began to move into the 80s, and of course you have, uh, you've got interesting intersections of people like Keith Green and, and Amy Grant and all of that. Well, the wonderful thing about CCM um, is, is that it has some similarities to Jesus music. Let me give you an example, it, not just um, uh, musically, but in terms of its, of, of its origination. Uh, you know, as I mentioned to you, I have my background is math and physics and science and all that. So I learned I learned very early on because it's just plain old science is that uh, every movement in nature creates a sound. Now, think about that. Hmm. If, if you tap that microphone in front of you, that movement will create a sound. And the same is true of moves of God. The move of God creates a sound. Now, sometimes you go back to what we call revivals over the years. It's the sound of preaching. Uh, sometimes it's the sound of music. The Jesus movement was clearly a move of God, calling people out of a whole decadent lifestyle, deteriorating world, the, the hippie world, uh, into relationship with him. And that was a move of God. Well, that produced a sound. That's why I love song would go to the park and sing their songs. And, and Larry Norman would sing his song. That, 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 there was no industry, by the way. All mm. this, there's no such thing as Christian music industry. Uh, it was just a few little label people that were just trying to build a business and, you know, run a business. Uh, I, always, I, I don't mind saying that we were always a business. Uh, with a ministry byproduct. Mm -hmm. And I was grateful for the ministry byproduct, by the way, but we had to be a business to stay, you know, to stay functional, to stay alive. So every sound, every movement creates a sound. Every move of God creates a sound. So what happened is Jesus' music was a sound of a certain movement of God. Then God started moving, spreading that movement into the evangelical church, into the charismatic church, into the Catholic uh, charismatic renewal, and it produced different a different sound but it was musically driven sound does that make sense yeah 
and I'm not denying that there were preachers and teachers and all mm-hmm. that. That's also the sound of God, but I'm focused on music here. So, so we were in an era where the sound that was being recorded, the songs that were being written, were coming from what Mylon Lefevre, a really well-known Christian rocker back in the day that I did 10 hours with, uh, he looked at me one day and he said, you have no idea what it's like to go to the secret place that only you and God can go. And he gives you this gem, this, this, this gem, and you polish it and you shape it and you try to put it in the most perfect setting, knowing that you're going to have to at some point reveal it to the world and they're going to determine if they like it or not. Mm-hmm. Now, that through for a minute. So that sound was coming from these songwriters and these artists from that secret place. It's what I call inspired songs. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. These were inspired songs because the move of God was so powerful uh, in that period of time uh, that he was inspiring the sound. Then what happens over time is it became an industry. We literally had associations and all, all the stuff you'd have. And, you know, when I started, uh, Bill, to be <clears throat> honest with you, we, didn't, we had no clue what to do. I would literally read Billboard magazine articles from uh, music business people, fallen people, you know, yeah. or not Christians, about how they made this happen or that happen. I would sit in a meeting with, with my guys around me and gals around me and say, okay, this is how you do that, so we're going to do it. That was literally our textbook because there was no industry. Well, fast forward, you know, 10 years later, now we've built an industry. We've got magazines, we've got radio stations, we've got associations, we've got meetings and, you know, all these events and festivals going on, all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, and so then what you have is a, is a machine that has to be fed. And so what you do is you have, you continue to have a, a, you wonderful recordings of inspired songs. Try to tell me that El Shaddai was not an inspired lyric. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll argue with that quite. If you ever thought about it, I'm going to write a really hot song for uh, for your radio station today, and I'm going to call it El Shaddai. Yeah, I think that's it. It's gonna, <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, inspired songs, you know, uh, and I can name song after song mm-hmm. after song. Uh, but what happens is that then you have this big machine to feed, and so you start saying, hey, um, you know what? This guy's a really good songwriter. Let's get him with that guy over there. I bet they can write a great song. Okay. And sometimes it works and sometimes it's inspired, but sometimes it's what I call contrived. Mm. Yeah. And so, you, so you create a sound, uh, I'll, I'll do an example in country music. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that in 19, early 1990s, Garth Brooks was inspired. His music was inspired because it was not country. It's certainly when the country I grew up with mm-hmm. and you grew up with, but it was an inspired sound that was country based, had some of the same uh, you know, rhythmic sounds and, and, and instrumentation. And so that inspiration literally changed the what we call country music. Look at country music today, 30 years later. It is nowhere near Willie Nelson and, and George Strait. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because then everybody tries to copy that sound. And so it becomes what I call, and I don't mean this, it sounds really uh, rude, but it becomes contrived. We have to create a sound that matches that and it has just the right, you have to have this much of that lyric and this much of that. You must have a bridge and must repeat the chorus three times and all the formula you deal with every day listening to things that are being pitched to your radio station. 
Uh, and so then it got, the water got kind of muddied. Uh, and so I'm not saying that there aren't inspired songs. You try to convince me that I can only imagine is not an inspired song. Mm -hmm. it came along in the late nineties. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not saying that they don't exist. What I'm saying is that the balance changed a bit to where we are today, where if it doesn't play on the radio, uh, I don't know if we can put that thing out. Uh, that was never a consideration back in the seventies. Uh, trust me, it was, you know, we would listen to uh, artists, we listen to demos and we say, you know what, there's something there. There's something really special there. We've got to promote that. Uh, because trust me, when I signed Amy, when she was 16 years old, over the telephone, listening to her demo over the phone, hmm. I'm about a phone held up to a speaker, <laughs> you know, by Chris Christian. Um, there was something there, uh, and it certainly wasn't fitting a formula. Uh, so more than you may wanted to know, but that's, that's how I view things. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, former Christian music executive Stan Moser. Today, he's CEO of ACT International. To find out more, go to ccmunited.com. Part two of this discussion tomorrow. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again tomorrow at this same time for another edition of His People.